Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome to your Wednesday night tale that'll have you biting your nails. When a group of children are being watched by a man in his house, behind the shaded window that hides his form, they at first think nothing of it, playing their games, ignoring the gaze of a man who they know of but never truly have met. To the town, he's by no means a stranger, and the kids have nothing to fear in a time where the community was strong and reasons for locking your doors during the day were non-existent. But there is something off about Mr. Dilgard, something that the children cannot pinpoint, yet they bravely, for better or for worse, find out whether the man spying on them truly is the man they know, or something else entirely. Your tale today is Mr. Dilgard by Cole Kenneth 56 Sit back, enjoy a lovely Earl Grey, and turn the lights down low for a creepy tale. I don't recall ever seeing Mr. Dilgard outside of his house, not counting the day that the coroner took him away. As far as I knew, he was a pretty nice old guy. Well, nice in the way that a ten-year-old boy can view an elderly person as nice. They all seem sort of strange at that age, don't they? I was raised by my grandmother in a small neighborhood on the outskirts of Cleveland. Not quite the city, but not quite the suburbs either right on the fringe. Its residents were mostly Slavic immigrants. It consisted of one long street with a butcher and baker's shop at one end, an urban park at the other, and tightly packed row of houses in between. The neighborhood had been built up around the 1950s, shortly after the Second World War. All the houses were pretty much the same, alternating ranch homes and duplexes, each one looking exactly like the others. All except one house, Mr. Dilgard's house. Mr. Dilgard's house sat at the far end of the street, two houses down from my grandmother's. It was the only unique house in the neighborhood, perhaps because it was built early on before developers came in. That house was the envy of all the neighbors and the most intriguing to the kids. Unlike the other homes, which were constructed of wood, and at some point wrapped in aluminium siding, Mr. Dilgard's house was made of stacked stones. It was a two-story single-family home, huge in relation to the other houses. The stone had probably been light sandstone color at some point, but eventually turned a greenish color because of all the moss and lichen growing in its crevices. It also had thick ropes of dark green ivy growing up most sides, reaching all the way to the roof in the back. The coolest part of it, at least to my friends and I, was a glass conservatory affixed to the second story of the rear of the home. It was difficult to see in because of the ivy growing around it, but we imagined how it might look inside. I thought I was lucky because my grandmother paid daily visits to Mr. Dilgard. He was a widower and living alone. My grandmother had always been the maternal sort and would constantly take over casseroles and leftovers for him. She occasionally sent me over to deliver these, and each time I was hoping to get invited in, and maybe, just maybe, 
get to see the inside of that room. Of course, as a young boy, I didn't think that it was proper for me to pry into an adult's life, and therefore never got up the courage to ask. Decades have passed since then, but what came into pass still makes the hairs on the back of my neck raise when I think about it. It started out being a curiosity, then became creepy, and then went all the way down the rabbit hole to insanity. My friends and I would play in our postage stamp sized backyards just about all day. Every day during the summer. Drinking from the hose, digging in the dirt, playing cowboys and Indians, which wasn't considered politically incorrect back in those days. All the neighbors were friendly and most could be found sitting on their front or back porches at some point during the day. They'd wave, smile, and occasionally offer us a drink or snack. It was pretty much a given that no one minded if we ran from yard to yard during our adventures. It went unsaid, but we never played in Mr. Dilgard's yard. The grass had gone to seed. His driveway was just a cracked mess of old asphalt with weeds growing through it. And despite being at the end of an otherwise sunny street, due to the thick strands of trees bordering its side and back, it always seemed dark. Besides, as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Dilgard never left his house, so we weren't sure how he would feel about having us in his yard. For the most part, we were well-behaved boys and polite enough to avoid risking upsetting him. However, as we sat on my lawn digging worms out of the dirt for a planned expedition to the little fishing pond in our park, I happened to glance towards Mr. Dilgard's house, specifically that little conservatory at the back of the second floor. A brief glance indicated that someone was watching us from behind the clouded glass. I did a double take to be certain, and he must have noticed me staring and backed away. I know that I had no reason to think so, but I somehow got the impression that he didn't approve of our shenanigans. Having noticed our spectator once, my eyes would wander over to the conservatory on a regular basis, and sure enough, every time I looked up, he was watching us. Every time. Eventually, he became so bold that he didn't back away when he caught me staring. I mentioned it to my friend, and soon we were all checking him out, silently daring him to make the next move. Perhaps open the window. I asked my grandmother why Mr. Dilgar was always watching us. Was he just bored? Did he have a sinister ulterior motive? She just dismissed me and said that I was being ridiculous, as he was too old to even climb the stairs anymore. If I thought I saw anyone up in that conservatory, it must just be my imagination. Still, I knew that I wasn't just conjuring it up in my head. My friend had seen him too. I was so insistent and made such a pest of myself that grandmother eventually relented and told me that she'd take me along on one of her afternoon visits. She would finally show me the inside of the house, and she was certain that that would finally provide proof that it was impossible for Mr. Dilgard to have been spying on us from the conservatory. Grandmother had filled a box with half a dozen of her homemade kuchens, Kuchen is the German word for cake, but they were more like little loaves of bread with a crumbly topping and filled with jam. It's German tradition to invite friends to one's home for an afternoon snack with tea or coffee. Since Mr. Dilgar was homebound, we would take the gathering to him. 
and I was nervous on the walk over, but my stomach was grumbling at the thought of those delicious cushions. I hoped that my grandmother was correct and I would leave Mr. Dilgard's home later that afternoon, convinced that our fanciful imaginations had gotten away from us, and us kids weren't seeing a person watching us, but perhaps an old blanket or sheet moving in the breeze. With each step, my paranoia melted away, and by the time we knocked on the door, I was under the impression that my grandmother had been right all along. But then we went inside. Mr. Dilgard was seated in an old leather armchair in his parlour. We weaved our way through boxes, piles of newspapers and furniture. Too much furniture and pieces too large for a house of this size. I didn't know the word as a kid, but I later came to find out that he was apparently what's called a hoarder. Grandmother said that he never threw anything away, except garbage, of course. And she joked that the only reason that got taken to the curb is because she cleaned his kitchen when he was napping or not paying attention. I took a seat, perched on the edge of another armchair, across from Mr. Dilgard. While my grandmother went to the kitchen to put the kettle on, I smiled and made some polite small talk, but it seemed as if grandmother was taking forever when I had exhausted myself of all the generic remarks I could come up with, I sat in silence and took in the scene around me. The hardwood floors were covered in places with threadbare throw rugs with cashin designs. Not dirty or dusty, though. My grandmother made sure of that. The plaster walls were covered in most places by peeling wallpaper. Floral and obviously Mrs. Dilgard's choice. Grandmother said that she had passed away long ago. Mr. Dilgard had already been a widower when she first moved into the neighborhood. The armchair that I occupied, as well as the oversized couch and love seat in the room were similarly decorated in a flowery print. I distinctly remember the smell. There was the smell of grandmother's kitchen, which sat on the table in front of me, and the smell of strong coffee wafting in from the kitchen. But there was an underlying, permanent smell. The house's smell. It smelled like dust, even though there was none visible, and mold, dank and wet, leathery. Basically, it smelled like an old person, but mixed in was a sickly sweet smell. Something I had smelled once before, but still I could not quite place it. It turned my stomach, though, and I had lost my appetite. I drank the small cup of coffee that my grandmother had given to me, but I declined the little cake she had plated for me. She looked concerned, but placed it back in the box. She'd leave them for Mr. Dilgard, of course. When we had finished up, she caught my eye and gave a barely discernible nod toward the kitchen. Why don't you get the cups and plates and help me clean up, honey? I did as she said and then followed her, deeper into the house. When we got to the kitchen, she had me set the dishware in the sink and beckoned me to follow her. I did, and we reached what I imagined to be the rear of the home. It was disorientating because of our erratic path through what had to be decades of collected junk. We stepped onto a little landing. Grandmother arched her eyebrows and looked at me, a touch of humor twinkling in her eyes. Still think that Mr. Dilgard has been going upstairs to watch you children? She didn't need to explain any further. There were steps leading both up and down from the landing, presumably to the second story at the basement, respectively. They were packed top to bottom 
with more of Mr. Dogard's collection of odds and ends. I felt deflated. You see, sweetie? Mr. Dogard is not watching you from his conservatory, Grandmother said, patiently. Even I couldn't get up there, and my hips are in much better condition. She was right, of course. We finished clearing up the dishes, made our farewells, and walked back home. I felt relieved, and yet confused, as if there was a hollow place in my stomach, unfulfilled. I knew that Grandmother was right. There was no way that Mr. Dilgar was getting up those steps, not unless he had a secret he was keeping from my grandmother. That thought still bugged me. That very evening, excited to tell my friends, I explained everything I had seen. I explained without much conviction that it was impossible for the old man to be spying on us. Just as the words crossed my lips, we collectively raised our heads to look at the second floor room, to reassure ourselves that we now knew the truth that our eyes had been playing tricks on us. And there he was. We knew without a shadow of a doubt that it was not a blanket, not a rolled up rug, not even a dresser's mannequin because of the eyes. You could see the reflection of the setting sun glinting in his eyes as he scanned back and forth. It continued for the next week or so, the watching I don't know why it bothered us so much. It wasn't as if he was doing anything that could harm us. Still, we found ourselves trying to play in other people's yards more often, avoiding anywhere that his gaze could follow us. Finally, as young boys often do, we came up with a stupid plan. Someone would sneak into his house and find the room, put an end to this once and for all. If there was something up there, something that we could be mistaken for a person, then that would put an end to it. We decided that it would be best for only one of us to go for the sake of being stealthy. It wasn't as if he would hurt us, right? He was just a frail old man. Unfortunately, I was the one picked to go, mostly because I had been in the house before. I was patient and waited for one of the days that my grandmother had asked me to deliver a casserole. Generally, I would knock and he would arrive at the door to accept it, this time, I decided that I would take it inside for him. I planned to go in quietly, and if he caught me, I could say that I did knock and he probably didn't hear. So I decided to just bring it in. This was back in a time when no one locked their doors. Neighborhoods were safe. Entering someone's house as long as you were courteous wasn't considered offensive. If someone did not want to be bothered, then they'd lock up. But most people never I could feel the sweat running down my back between my shoulder blades as I walked over. Once on Mr. Dilgard's back porch, I knocked very lightly, just in case. Then it wouldn't be a lie if I had to say that the old man hadn't heard me. I balanced the Corningware dish, you know, the white ones with blue flowers, on my hip and pulled open the screen door. I entered and let the door close behind me slowing its travel with my rear end so as not to allow it to bang shut. I stopped, waited, and listened very carefully. I did not hear anyone moving around, so I set the casserole dish on the kitchen table and planned out my next move. I calmed myself and decided to risk a peek around the corner and into the parlor. Maybe he had fallen asleep and was napping in his chair. 
I held onto that hope, as it would provide me with a little extra confidence. I had failed to come up with the strategy for making my way through all the junk blocking the stairs to the second floor. He was not in his parlour. I began surveilling the remainder of the first floor. Each empty room added to my surety that Mr. Dilgard was, indeed, up in the conservatory at that very moment. Perhaps it would not even be necessary for me to check it out. Although, to be honest, I really did want to see the interior of that room. The only room left for me to check was Mr. Dilgard's first floor bedroom. It was late in the afternoon, and it was doubtful that he would still be in bed, but I needed to be sure. I only made it halfway down the hall when the stench hit me. It was a mixture of rotting meat, shit and cheese, mixed with a few drops of cheap perfume. I instinctively gagged, but pressed on, already having a sense of what I was going to find. Even my nose pinched shut and limps pressed together. I vomited when I entered the bedroom and saw him. Poor Mr. Dogo must have died in his sleep. He lay in the bed, mouth open and dead eyes staring blankly at the ceiling. He had loosened his bowels when he died. But aside from that, there were no other signs or pain or struggling. I hoped that he had gone peacefully. The next few days passed quickly. A blur of emotions, feelings, sickness. I could barely sleep because of the nightmares. My grandmother tried to console me. She said that I should not have had to be the one to find him like that. A boy's first experience with death shouldn't have to be that devastating. Children need to learn about such things slowly. It wasn't proper for them to encounter an unpresentable corpse. No, the first time, every time if one was lucky enough, should be looking at the person, loved one or not, made presentable by an undertaker. It was just, just easier that way. Easier to think that death was perhaps not something so so revolting. It was as if, when I removed my good suit that I had worn to the funeral, I also removed the feelings associated with Mr. Dilgard's passing. I somehow quickly assumed the normal routine of a kid my age. I went back to school. I went back to playing with my friends. Yes, there were the wide-eyed questions that everyone had. What did he look like? Did he stink? Was there blood all over? Do you think that he was murdered? I'll bet he was murdered. All the silly questions and theories of young boys that you could think of. It only took a few days to exhaust their interest and then we went back to playing as normal. Only now, we could play without our mysterious watcher. We were sad, in a way. Now wishing that he was still alive, watching or not. But he was. My friend Keith was the first one to see it. We were playing kickball when he just stopped. He stopped running and his jaw fell open. The rest of us followed his gaze upward toward Mr. Dilgard's conservatory. Unmistakably dead Mr. Dilgard's conservatory. Only there was someone there, someone still watching, and now they weren't even trying to be subtle about it. We could see them moving back and forth, going from window to window, tilting their head to get a better look. Once they had our undivided attention, they slammed their hand against the glass, and we saw a pale face approach the window. It was over in a split second, but it was real. No mistaking it. We heard it. We stopped playing in my backyard altogether. We just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. It was too uncomfortable, too scary. 
Whenever I left the house to go to school, take a trip to the store, even to take out the trash, I kept my eyes fixed on the ground, not daring to look up for even one second. I tried distracting my grandmother too, when we were outside. If she had looked up and seen something, well, her confirmation would probably drive me insane. Weeks passed before a disturbing revelation came to light. Much to the ire of my grandmother, Mr. Dilgar's estranged daughter eventually showed up to clean out the house and prepare it for sale. Hasn't visited him in years, but now there's an inheritance, she comes sniffing around. My grandmother would say, sometimes to various friends and neighbors. It turned out that Mr. Dilgar's daughter ended up with more troubles than a windfall. You see, when she and her husband cleared out the furniture, collected items and debris, they eventually made their way to the back staircase. Moving forward aside enough refuse, they made a grisly discovery in the second floor conservatory. They found the body of Mrs. Dilgard, the person whom all the neighbors had assumed died long ago. While this was an unpleasant discovery, particularly repugnant to me, since it brought up visions of the time I found Mr. Dilgard, it was a bit of a relief. After all, seeing evidence that our watcher was still up there even after Mr. Dilgar's death was disconcerting. This explained it. Somehow, some way, she had been living in that house, and it was likely that it was she who had been watching us all along. My relief was short-lived. However, when word about her got around the neighborhood, according to the coroner, Miss Dilgar's corpse was desiccated. Essentially, mummified. Evidence that she had passed quite a while back, probably even before my grandmother moved to the neighborhood. The house never did sell. Realtors are required to provide disclosures to potential buyers regarding things that may have happened in the home or neighborhood. A death in the home was one of those things. Besides, even if the realtor had gotten around to mentioning it somehow, you could never quite get the stink of death out of a place. You could take out the furniture, remove the carpets, even add fresh paint. But the spoiled meat smell seeps into the plaster and wood itself. No amount of candle or air freshness would ever fix that. Years passed and I eventually had the unfortunate task of selling off my own grandmother's estate after her passing. God rest her soul. On my final day there, after saying one last goodbye to the house that I had been raised in, I locked up the back door and walked down the driveway toward my car. As I did, I dared to take one last look up at Mr. Dilgar's old conservatory. She was still watching. So, turned out the person in the window was in fact the widower's wife. I must admit, I was really caught off guard by the twist. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't as if I couldn't see it coming, but there were no messages or tells or cues to indicate this was the case until the very end. So I really enjoyed that. In this episode, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to critique the story. You can let me know what your thoughts are, and if you think my opinion is justified or not, <laughs> and critique my critique. <laughs> I'll be rating this across a couple of sections, but no score is going to be given out. This is more of a learning process and also a thought process in where this story could have gone and where it can improve. 
as well as what it did right. Either way, let me know if you enjoyed this review, and it's something I'm thinking of including in the future. Let's start. Dialogue. Believable when present, albeit limited, the author needs to quickly characterize those in the story with strong attitudes and opinions because the space for dialogue is limited in such a short horror story like this. This is why writing horror stories and short ones in particular is a work of art. It's very difficult to cram so much in such a short space of time. Every single piece of dialogue that's said by a character needs to push the narrative forward, much like film. Every scene matters, and every scene should push the plot forward, no matter what. And Cole Kenneth, 56, did a great job in that. If I'm going to pull a key example of good dialogue out of this story, I want to mention the dialogue with the kids, their questions, and the succinct understanding that the kids would have a bucket load of questions regarding the murder, and that their interest on this situation would taper off rather quickly. This really had me grinning, and shows the author's clear interactions with kids in the past, and how fleeting their attention span can be. I was chuckling at that. So why is this important? Albeit short, the realistic dialogue really cements that the world that you're in exists. And creating these charming interactions actually helps with immersing the reader in that story and having them feel like they're in it. That's why the actions of protagonists are so critical. They shouldn't be doing things or saying things that are out of character or so strange that they snap you out of that world that they're in. So kudos, Cole Kenneth, for that one. The dialogue with the grandmother as well was quite well written, and every comment she had was well placed and for good reason. I'll get into that shortly. Characters. Three characters in this story, each with the role of pushing the narrative forward. Our main character was believable and kept pushing forth the truth regarding Mr. Dilgard's situation, whilst all the while wishing he was wrong about how the man was going up and down the two-story house that he lives in. Now, despite the grandmother having limited coverage in this story, when she is cast, she plays a pivotal role in not only creating doubt in our protagonist's mind, but also in the reader's. Her realistic dispersions on the situation had the reader wondering, like the kid, whether or not the situation is really as it first appears. And lastly, the old man, a red herring. So basically, the art of misdirection. Cole Kenneth shows us one thing, has us assumed that it's the old man, when in fact, it was his wife. As a writer, you have to be a little bit careful with red herrings because it can feel like, you know, the audience has been duped and not everyone enjoys having that happen to them whilst they're reading the story. It can feel contrived and a little unearned. It just depends on how the story progresses and if the overall plot is written in a way that allows the audience to accept that as being a proper ending or believable red herring. You have to wonder as well that if the old woman was watching them and slamming her hands against the glass, that she must have been trapped in that forsaken place, perhaps for eternity. Goodness. Now let's get on to plot. No gaps, no issues in the way that the story played out, in saying that though as the reader gets closer to the end, the mystery and suspense tapers off quite quickly, and some readers could find the ending a little abrupt in the sense that the path that we're taking is quite clear and obvious. So if this story was focusing on suspense, I think it did a reasonable job with room to improve, perhaps in the pacing and choice of detail in key areas like the old man's house. I'd suggest even cutting out dialogue from the grandmother and having more dialogue or narrative description spent on the protagonist 
and their time investigating the house on both visits. That way we really get a sense of the location and what's creeping him out the most. Nothing wrong with the way it's been written here, and it's only a suggestion. Spending more time on the house though, means that there's more opportunity to get to know the old man's situation and what could be lying around the house that could point to his wife's disappearance. Building up that tension and that mystery, is it the old man or is it the wife? Or could it be the wife all this time? At the point in that story, we don't really know, and you can leverage off that mystery to create that suspense. Either way, conjuring up a deeper connection between our protagonist, the situation they're in, and the dead man and his wife, leading to perhaps a bigger payoff narratively at the end. All up, I think this is a very well-written story. The build-up was great and the characters were charming, interesting, and realistic. Areas where I think the author can improve is pacing, more details spent on world and character building where possible, which would have led to a punchier and creepier ending. What are your thoughts though, folks? Is there any area in particular that you feel the author could improve on, or, alternatively, where the author kicked ass in? Now I'd love to hear your thoughts, and a big thank you to Cole Kenneth 56 for this story. Now, for my thank you to the Patreon that support this show with dollary dues so that this podcast can keep on improving. My own nighty titan, Maya. Thank you so much for your jaw-droppingly awesome support. I get to do different things on this podcast all the time, and thanks to your support, I can deliver them at the highest quality production possible. Thank you so, so much, mate. Not one episode goes by that I'm not thinking this. My two white tea warlords, Ion Cows and Lee Bauer, you lovelies keep this podcast pumping along. Thank you both so much for your dollary dues, and every month you push this podcast to new heights. Thanks, mates. And my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, Dolphin and Cow, and Michelangelo Yacone. Thank all of you for your support. Mates, have a fantastic Wednesday and week. This Friday, I'll be doing some Dracula stories as part of my ongoing series, and I can't wait to get to them then. I'm seriously hoping I don't get ill, though, because six people at work have been sneezing and coughing like crazy, and you know how it is, folks, when you're in an air-con environment. You breathe in the same air. So I'll see how I go. Worst comes to worst. If I'm feeling the sickness, I'll prepare an OTR just in case. But I'll aim for Dracula first and foremost. Thank you, little lovelies, for listening. And as always, till next we meet.